Welcome to the 24-7 Sports College Basketball Show. I'm your host, Tony Levitt, back in the studio for a second time this week. I really hope you enjoyed my conversation with Evan Daniels about Anthony Edwards on Tuesday. And if you haven't had a chance to listen because you aren't used to seeing episodes in our feed on a Tuesday, I get it. But go listen, because I think Evan gave us some really nice perspective on Edwards and what it's like to grow into the potential number one pick in the NBA draft. Also, I want to give a big shout out to Paranormal Avenger on Twitter for giving me a little back and forth about Edwards' performance against Kentucky on Tuesday night. My man, Mr. Avenger, didn't like that Edwards and his teammates were celebrating when they were up five at the half in a game that they would eventually lose. But I say, let the kids have fun. Basketball is fun, and I don't think that should be conditional on whether or not you win. But the most important takeaway from that Twitter interaction is that you should do as Paranormal Avenger has done and follow the 24-7 Sports College Basketball Show on Twitter. The handle is at 247sportscbbpod. And don't worry if you didn't write that down. I linked in the show notes, so a follow is just two taps away. And whether you're following the show or not, we want to hear from you. Which teams and which topics do you want to hear us talk about? If you tweet questions with the hashtag 247CBB, I will pose them to our expert and our philosophizer-in-chief, Jerry Meyer, who also happens to be a former coach, former player, and college basketball's all-time assist king, so I imagine you want to hear what he has to say. So hit us up on the bird. I'm looking forward to you guys putting together the show notes for me. Okay, so with that out of the way, we have a great show planned for you today. Jerry's going to come on later to continue our conversation about modern basketball philosophy, talk about some interesting moments in coaching, and marvel at the mess in Chapel Hill. But first, it's time for you and I to take our monthly look at the NCAA's net rankings. Like we discussed in December, the net is the NCAA's replacement for the RPI. It updates every day based on the results of the night prior, and at the end of the season, the net rankings will be the first tool the rankings committee will use when admitting teams into the NCAA tournament and then seeding them. I don't think there's much to gain from a regular college basketball fan looking at the net every single day, but once a month, I think it's worth a peek. So I went to check this morning and two teams jumped off the page for me. Stanford at 17 and Rutgers at 21. Neither of these teams had any real buzz going into the season. In fact, this summer, I assumed Rutgers would be just the welcome mat for the Big Ten, you know, losing to every good team like they've always been. And yet, here they are in the top 25 of the net. So I, I took a deeper look at the numbers, and here's what I found. Don't look now, but Rutgers is 34 in Ken Palm, and Stanford isn't so far behind at 50. And that's way ahead of 63 and 92 where they started the season. And the other metrics, they back this up for the most part. Still, 34 and 50 doesn't explain top 25. The thing is, unlike these uh, performance-based metrics, the, the net is a results-based system. And it rewards not losing to bad teams. The net breaks games down into four quadrants, with quad one indicating a tough game or a game against a quality opponent, and quad four is an easy game. Stanford's two losses... Kansas and Butler, two number one seeds if the tournament started now, obviously quad one. Rutgers had a disappointing loss at home to St. Bonaventures, a quad three loss, but its other two losses at Pitt and at Michigan State, both quad one. So even though Stanford has only one quad one win, a 19-point win against Oklahoma on a neutral, the net likes that the Cardinals don't have any bad losses. 
and Rutgers would probably be even higher if it weren't for their loss to the Bonnies, because they have three quad one wins over Wisconsin, Seton Hall, and Penn State. That explains the how. But do either of them have staying power? They both have top 20 defenses, according to Ken Palm, so that's a good starting point. Unfortunately for Rutgers, they play in the strongest Big Ten in years, the toughest conference in the country this year. So as nice as this start has been, I'm going to look elsewhere for now. If they can get another win against the ranked team, I'll come back to the Scarlet Knights. But for now, I'm going to look to the Cardinals. Stanford is interesting to me. The Pac-12 is just the sixth best conference in the country, and only five of its teams are in the top 50 of Ken Palm. So those few individual matchups will have an outsized influence on who wins the conference and who can capitalize and get a really good seed in the tournament. As I mentioned earlier, the Cardinals have a top 20 adjusted defense on Ken Palm. Unfortunately for them, their offense is not even close to that level, ranking 147th in the country. What's crazy, though, is that they are 14th in the country in effective field goal percentage, which basically means that they are really good at getting and making good shots. Sure enough, the Cardinals are 11th in the country in three-point percentage and top 50 in two-point percentage, so they're, they're good at shooting. And how, how could their offense be that bad if they're so good at shooting and finding good shots? They turn the ball over a lot. On more than a fifth of their possessions, the Cardinals give the ball to the other team. So if Stanford can find a way to cut back the turnovers and turn those possessions into three-point attempts or good, good two-point attempts, their shooting percentage will surely drop, but their scoring and their overall offense will rise and be better. And I know this has been a long intro and you want Jerry, so I'm wrapping up, I promise. But there's one other thing to remember. The Cardinals lost to Butler on the same night that Duke lost to Stephen F. Austin and the same day as the Maui Invitational tipped off, so I don't think it really got much attention. Stanford and Butler weren't ranked at the time, but it was a great game. It came down to the final possession, and Stanford was winning with as few as eight seconds left in the game. Kamar Baldwin, the senior, off the step back. He knocks it down! Terry for Stanford! And Butler wins! An unforgettable final minute! Were it not for that Kamar Baldwin fadeaway winner, we might be looking at Stanford completely differently. A one-loss team with a 19-point win over Oklahoma on a neutral, and a win over now top-five Butler as well that team would be ranked instead of having just 11 AP votes on the season. And I know Butler probably wouldn't be top five, but this is still a really good Butler team, and we'd be looking at Stanford really differently. The thing is, I don't know if Stanford will be able to cut its turnovers, but if they do, watch out. I think the net might be a step ahead of the rest of us on this one. So that's my soliloquy about the net. Let's take a break, and on the other side, I'll bring in college basketball's assist king, Jerry Meyer, to talk about coaching behavior, three-pointers, appropriate on-court behavior, and the disaster in Chapel Hill. All right, welcome back to the 24-7 Sports College Basketball Show. We've got the star of the show back on the mic, Jerry Meyer, college basketball's all-time assist king. Jerry, let me tell you something. I have my first rec league basketball game, January 20th, and your boy is team captain. So, Have you had a practice yet? We have our first team meeting. Uh, 
they needed someone to be captain to like be the person and he to, volunteered like, to do it yeah. to do all the work i mean it's just to, to get the emails from the league but i volunteered to do it so yeah your boy's gonna put the c on his jersey but but we have a buy in the first week so we're gonna we're gonna get drinks and and kind of set up our defense and whatnot next monday so that's a great way to work on your defense is yeah like, I mean, over drinks absolutely <laughs> it's it, it's it's to be honest it's the best way to do most planning especially <laughs> if you wait to do the planning until after you know you've you know properly lubricated you also gotta get the repetition absolutely you, you start with the planning though yeah get the repetition one drink two drinks and then start taking it seriously once you hit the third <laughs> so so yeah so i'll have to i'll have to uh let you know how that goes but jerry i got for hanukkah my grandmother got me a uh a gift card to amazon thank you so much uh and i bought myself a shooting sleeve where do you stand on shooting sleeves well i actually had to wear wear one <clears throat> uh as an old man as like a swaggy as like an older 30 year old you know, rap ball player, uh, because my elbow is messed up. So if you need it, wear it. Um, not really big on it as a fashion accessory, but well, they, I they, need they, it. they do look cool on Allen Iverson. <laughs> Allen Iverson made everything look cool. I love that dude so much. True story. Wore Allen Iverson shoes on my eighth grade basketball team. Never forgot. They were so cool. Um, so, so we got we got a lot to get into today, Jerry. Uh, and I know the listeners are not so interested in my uh, in my rec league team, though. You can you can bet your bottom dollar that when I drop twenty in our first game, the listeners are going to find out about it because I, I'm boastful and 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 pe- the people want to know. And and if you lay an egg, we'll just never hear about it. I'm, <laughs> I'm a professional, you know, not an idiot. So, <laughs> so, so you know, take advantage of my mic for some things and not for others. So, 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 Jerry, we've got. Like I said uh, in the intro, we've got this new Twitter feed, 24-7 Sports College Basketball Show on Twitter, and, and we're using it to collect feedback from our listeners, and we've got a lot to talk about, but I wanted to start with our first listener question. So for those of you at home who, who have listened to the show regularly, you know that we did a show on Tuesday with Evan Daniels about Anthony Edwards, and someone saw during the game against Kentucky for Georgia on Tuesday night that when... It was halftime. Anthony Edwards and Georgia were up five points, and a bunch of the Georgia people were pretty pumped. They were smiling and, and pretty you know, ecstatic with each other. And someone said, you know, they shouldn't they shouldn't have been celebrating at the half uh, because they, they ended up losing. And, and Jerry, so I want you know, and I don't think that's necessarily so fair because I think basketball is supposed to be fun. You know, basketball is awesome, and people should enjoy things that are awesome but so jerry what i wanted to ask you maybe slightly different from our listener is what is an appropriate way to express excitement on the basketball court during a game you know because obviously yeah. after the game it's different i you know i don't know if there is um i i don't get been out of shape on stuff like this a lot of it's i think typically kind of revisionist history you know if georgia wins that game no one's talking about any celebrating at halftime and i didn't even view it as celebration i i heard some disgruntlement about it and saw some tweets from Kentucky fans kind of rubbing salt in the wound, you know, like, oh, I guess they forgot there's a second half or blah, blah, blah. Um, so I, I checked it out a little bit because I taped the game and I didn't see anything egregious. Um, it's, and I think the one thing on the court as a former player, former coach, is you, you do – there is a notion, I think, of respecting the game and respecting your opponent, but – Players are different. Players have different emotions. I think the better you are, the more you can do. <laughs> you know, it, no, I don't think anyone wants like tenth guy on the bench. You know, unless you make some great plays, acting a fool out on the court. You know, you get more leeway the more talented you are. 
But I don't know what the line is. I don't know how to gauge it. And, you know, I've done disrespectful stuff to a opponent. That happens. Is that, <laughs> is that so bad? I don't know. I mean, let's be, I, I let's for be, one am shocked. Let's be grown-ups and let's deal with it, you know. And if you don't like a guy celebrating, then prevent him from having a reason to celebrate. Oh, true, true words. And I, and to be fair, like – for me personally, and like you said, I really think this is this is a, a personal matter. And 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 you know, to the listener who uh, who tweeted this at us, if if you felt that it was across the line, that, that's fine for you. You know, this is this is a personal you know line for everyone. Exactly, to draw. we're all going to have different lines. <clears throat> for <laughs> me, as long as you're not being obnoxious in the other team's face, like that's where I feel like it's it's not respectful. You know, but like well, you probably you, get a technical, and your coach probably isn't happy about that. But is that morally intrinsically? I just think it's like a jerk wrong. Move. If I get in your face and say, you know, went, 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 <laughs> you know, I let you know about it. Um, I don't, you know, I, I don't have hard lines in the sand drawn. Well, you know, whether or not whether or not you have hard lines in the sand drawn, we have a line in the sand drawn, and that is if you tweet at twenty four seven Sports College Basketball Pod with the hashtag twenty four seven CBB. And you have a question for Jerry, we will bring it up on the podcast. Unless we're getting hundreds of questions, which I would totally appreciate. But unless we're getting hundreds of questions, we're going to try to answer every single one of them. Yeah, that's, that's what I enjoy doing. So if you have a question, dialogue. If you have a question, send it in for us. We'll we'll put we'll put it right in front of Jerry. Uh, but for now, I've got some stuff. And so last week, Jerry, you and I talked about some of your philosophy of modern basketball, and we hinted at the fact that one of the things we didn't touch on was the three-pointer. And that, you know, is just a crucial part of today's modern game. When you when you talk about the way the Villanovas of the world, the Golden State Warriors of the world have approached, the Rockets of the world have approached the three-point shot, you know, it's just completely changed. You know, it used to be, oh, you got to get the ball close and closer to the, to the hoop. Now it's, you know, only super close to the hoop or a three-pointer. And so I'm just going to cede the floor to you and let you talk about the way you think about the three-point shot in the modern game, and then we can move the conversation yeah. from there. Well, it's a focal point, and it, it should be, because three is 50% more than two, right? Philosophizer and king. Well, it's math, and it's just it's really common sense to me. Now, I think you shoot better from three when the ball does penetrate the arc first. Mm-hmm. You know, dribble penetration, kick it out, or, or a pass into the post, kick it out. If you think about it um, from a player perspective, typically when players practice their jump shooting, they're receiving the basketball. A lot of times the guy's under the basket, <clears throat> you know, rebounding, passing it out to him. Catching it in pocket, too. Or they have a machine. But the direction of the ball is typically coming from the rim area where they're already squared up. So when you're – it's, to me, always easier in a game <clears throat> to shoot a three when the ball is coming out to you from the lane or from the basket area. Just naturally your body's more squared up. Mm-hmm. You know, prior to the shot, talk about the most, I, pr- probably the most iconic three-point shot of the 2010s in college basketball. Villanova buzzer beater against UNC in and the he, final. He tossed it back. Tossed it back. The yeah. guy was stepping into his shot, receiving the ball from yeah, close to the that's basket. The, that's the idea. And, you know, so I, th- I think a team is making a mistake, or it's not in their benefit. <clears throat> not productive if they're not breaking the arc with the basketball. I just don't think you're going to shoot a high percentage of threes. Uh, One, because, you know, it's just tougher to shoot it if you're catching the ball from the side. It's not a huge, huge difference. But there's a different rhythm. 
than when the ball penetrates, and you're not going to get as open. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're not going to cause defensive breakdowns. I think they're really smart, good defensive teams these days, and I think people like teams like the Warriors and other three-point dominant teams in this new era, modern era of basketball, have caused this to happen. Um, I think the good defensive teams are slower to help these days. You know, like when I was playing basketball, mm-hmm. it was always help, help on D, get over, help, help. Well, you're going to get killed these days. Dan Dockage is all over that this season. You got it. Yeah, I've heard other announcers. You, you've got you got to stick with your man more. Just the rules have changed, be, you know, of how to play because of the talent of the players and the three-point line. Mm-hmm. So, um I don't know what my ultimate point is here. I'm just trying to, you know, point out some factors involved in this. So, yeah, I think you need to shoot a lot of threes, especially if you can make them. But you can't just settle on that three-point line. You've got to get some penetration. And and the thing is, if you get easy twos, take them. There's nothing wrong. Like The whole analytical thing of it either needs to be a layup dunk or a three – well, I think that is a good place to start in framing it. But a lot of the, you know, so we're going to tell DeMar DeRozan and Kawhi Leonard not to take, you know, what are you doing taking a 12, 15-footer? Some players are great at that. Mm-hmm. You know, that's their – and so you're looking at what percent do they make, how many – out of that percent, how many points are they producing? I mean, you can boil it down to math. I mean, it's but, just but like It's you not just like said. the game's devoid of the mid-range shot. We're still seeing mid-range shots, and that in, in turn helps set up ultimately what most teams want, and that's the three-point shot. Of course, and it's just like what you said, where, where you're, you want to be – like the three-point shot, the way it's developed, it's all about setting yourself up for good shots, not necessarily specific shots. So like a, you know, a two-point jumper, if you've, if you've pump-faked a defender past you, that's a different shot than if you're taking a step-back jumper sure. from that same spot yeah, on the floor. Right. You know, as a coach, uh, when you – analyze um, how good a shot a shot is, you know, shot selection. And the, the key components are, one, being open. But guys today can make contested shots. Guys in the past can make contested shots, depending how good you are. But, yeah, being open, but it's rhythm. Having rhythm on the shot and, and taking a shot, and this is tied into rhythm, but one that you're used to taking, one that fits within your offense uh, you, you play on a team a lot of times, and when a guy shoots one of your teammates, you typically have a reaction, and you want to have that reaction of, yeah, that's that's what we're used to. That's what we do in practice. That's his shot. I feel good about that. And it's not so much how wide open is he. It's like who is the player? <laughs> Can he make that shot? And is it is there flow? Is there rhythm to the shot? That's when teammates get upset with guys that – it's not so much how many shots a guy takes, but when you don't trust the shots he's taking. Mm-hmm. You feel like he's forcing it. You know, he's just trying to get his. It's not within the flow. That can beat a team down because players get disheartened and disgruntled, and it can cause friction and poor play. Mm-hmm. And th- there there are two other things that I wanted to touch on. One we kind of already hinted at. The first 
is the way this has changed the fast break because mm-hmm. you know yeah, growing great up point. great point growing up you know i was taught you know if you don't have the ball if you have the ball bring it down the middle of the court so that people can kind of fill the lanes either side of you just outside the paint filling your way to the point where they could potentially get a layup you know, you're going right Every, and now you see people filling the out the corner. lanes <laughs> exactly right to the corner right to the elbow and for one threes. of the best three point shots is that pass up the court and you catch it on the wing and boom, you fire that three. Now, a lot of commentators have trouble with that. If the shot goes in, oh, of course, it's fine. But a guy missed, oh, I think that was a little early. I don't know that the sh- shot they want. Yeah, it's the shot they wanted. Every team's working on those transition drills where they're running to the arc, passing the ball up. It's a, plus, it's a great opportunity for offensive rebounding. Like when I played at college at Lipscomb under my dad, Coach Meyer, we fired it. And it was amazing. We did a we got more offensive rebounds when we missed in transition than we did in a muddled down half court grind it mm-hmm. more type scenario because you get long rebounds and and, and it, it's kind of tough to block out in a scramble transition situation. That was exactly where I wanted to go. Actually, on a, on the defensive end, when you're not in transition, let's say for a second, um, three pointers, missed three pointers often lead more to long rebounds, which then in turn leads to tra- uh, transition opportunities for the defense. The other way. It can work that way as well. Yes. Yeah, so so when you are planning on defense, how, how do you kind of like, if you're playing against a, a team that shoots a lot of three-pointers, let's say, are you going to say to your guards, slip out because we know the rebounds are going to go long. We want you to then be a, a, you know able to go get those uh, transition opportunities. Uh, it's possible. You know, a team who plays that way. Um, it's very aggressive. I, I don't know that you – you know, typically I think most teams, and I think the good ones, kind of stick with what they do. And they might tweak a little per their opponent. I tend to see the teams that are, like, drastically changing their MO from opponent to opponent. They tend not to be the best teams. So a team might do that. I, I do have feelings – you know, if you're not in there rebounding – do something useful. Like, I noticed this watching Obi Toppin. I mean, obviously he rebounds well. He's one of the leaders in rebounds, I believe, in the nation. He's up there. But if he's not in a position to rebound, I noticed he was leaking out. But why just stand around in no man's land and watch? So I do like the idea of leaking out at times. That puts a lot of pressure on the other team. You know, they, they have to account a number for that. Um, so, yeah, I think – I think teams that run, and this is kind of an adage, I don't know how true it is, but team, you can run against teams that like to run. And there's some phrase like that? I think there is. <laughs> I, mean, I don't of, know. I heard I it. Mean, it, it relates sense. to what you're talking about. A team that likes to run typically doesn't like to be run against, or they're, or they're not – that's not where their mind is. That you know, They're all about – I know that's how we were in college. I mean, we talk defense, defense. But we're averaging like almost 110 points a game. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, in we're college? playing. Yeah, we're playing like the Lola Marymount style. Ooh. And um, so we we got ran on a lot too. <laughs> we're playing fast, and it's a helter skelter game. You must and, have been. And we're trying shape. to get ours, and when you're trying to get yours, uh, sometimes you're going to give up some to them. So, so you were you must have been in tremendous shape. When you were playing, uh, yeah, I, I was in great shape. I mean, oh, we didn't wow. get TV timeouts. We were playing small college basketball. I could play the whole game. Oh my gosh! I had a good V. Was it VO two max? 
thing. I don't, in other words, when I breathe in, I, I keep the oxygen. Oh, man. In my lungs. And as a team, we were in shape. I don't need we, a we super just, inhaler We just played fast. We played 94. We played full court man-to-man defense as well. We tried to make the game a full court as fast as possible game because we were very skilled. We were not a physical pounding team. We, we were, you know, think about like some of the real good Michigan teams. As far as like everyone skilled, we could spread the court. West Virginia, back when they had that run with Pitsnoggle and those guys, uh, that's more like what we were. And we tried to play defense, but we we were we leaned to the side of the guys that aren't going to play great D and great rebounding, but we could all shoot the three, we could all pass, we could all handle the ball. That's my that's my kind of, that's my kind of basketball. Yeah, you would fit in. So the, so the, <laughs> so my last question, we, you know, we we kind of hinted that at this earlier is helping off of people who aren't even necessarily three-point shooters. Well, that's a mortal sin. But but well, but just people who are in three-point shooting opportunities. You know, when you talk about helping off of the corner ball side, that you know, that used to be something you could do if you're if you're guarding a four or a, a weaker three. Now, no matter who you're guarding, if you're on the ball side guarding the corner, you can't help on a drive because that that three's going up. I agree. Yeah, and it's, a co- and it's a common mistake because kids are brought up, and, and it, it's a positive thing. I want to be active on defense. I want to help my teammate. Well, you're not helping your team. <laughs> Unless you draw that charge. And you're not really helping. You're right, but, you know, true. Like, and sometimes the, the right decision might not produce the right result, and a poor decision might produce a right result. But you have to fight instinct, and when you're guarding guys – who are threats to shoot in threatening places on the court, you can't leave them. You, you got to give up two, if not three. And you got to count on your post guys uh, to provide the help. And then maybe a weak side guy, so then it's a longer pass and you can rotate. Yeah, I was about to say, if the other guys can help from the other side of the court, put put that side of your defense in rotation, fine. You can then slide back into the key from, from what is now the weak side. There's no recourse for leaving the guy in the ball side corner. Absolutely <laughs> gonna, not. If he can shoot, he's going to catch it, he's going to fire it. All right, so, so, the, so the last thing before we move on from three-pointers is just – worth noting and this is not something that really i don't think you or i have anything unique to say about this it's just worth noting that the three-point percentage in college basketball has gone up and up just about every single year until this year and let me guess they moved the line back they moved the line back <laughs> jerry wow man we're connecting some dots here man we're figuring some stuff out you know jerry that I would think be the first place to start on, if on you and i if you and I uh, weren't brilliant college basketball podcast hosts, I think we could have been mathematicians. This this three is greater than two. I can Moving. do basic math. Yeah. I'm really really good at basic math. My mom's but an. It's funny teacher. some people aren't. Like like the girl I date, uh, Alice, she's smart at like higher level math, but you ask her to add or subtract or figure out a tip. <laughs> Good luck. Shout out Alice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. had to throw her name in there. Okay, okay. Flex a little bit, Jerry. So, so 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 meanwhile, here we are. We are hosting a college basketball show. So let's talk a little about college basketball. This week was an interesting week for college basketball coaches. We had we had two coaches uh, from the Carolinas getting in the news. First off, we had Coach Frank Martin from South Carolina shoved one of his players in the huddle. And um, one of our uh, guys here in the studio is, is a, a South Carolina fan, not pleased. And, and here's the story for those of you at home who haven't heard about this. 
um, basically the player wasn't, uh, according to Coach Martin, uh, the player wasn't going to the scorer's table fast enough to check in. And so the coach kind of shoved him over. And, and in jest, in, in the press conference afterwards, the, you know, the coach said to the um, reporter who asked him about it, he said, what, should I have hugged him? And so, so you've been a coach. You've been a player. Where is the line in terms of physical contact between players and coaches? Um, yeah, I mean, I've been physically contacted by coaches. Uh... It's different when it's your dad, though. Uh, that's very, very true. But, I, you know, I've had it with other coaches, too. N- nothing major. But, um, you know, I think it's in a coach's best interest to avoid physical contact. I, I don't see the upside there. Um, I'm not going to get completely bent out of shape, say, Tennessee football, right? Coach Pruitt, you know, grabbed him by the face mask in that one game in Tano, mm-hmm. and it's a big deal, and – People had different opinions on that, you know. I still got a little old school in me, you know. Like, you know, we had coaches that would grab our basketball jersey, you know, by the chest. I I think you're better off not doing that. I'm not a big draw a line guy. <clears throat> I, I'm, I'm more of a there's nuances in life. and <laughs> Most of it's gray and there's context with stuff. But, man, it saves a coach a lot of heartache if he doesn't touch his players. But, you know, but then there's emotional abuse. So, like, is, how much is it okay to cuss at a player? Can you emotionally abuse a player without cussing? Well, of course you can. So just because that's why I'm not a big line guy. Cause, oh, the coach, oh, I didn't cuss. Well, I don't give a rip. You know, you beat the guy down. <laughs> you know, you, did, you follow what I'm saying? And then there's other coaches they can swear like a sailor. And players just threw one ear out the other. You know, it's, and Izzo last year with the Aaron Henry thing, you know, the key is respect between coach and player. Mistakes can be made and respect can be salvaged and repaired, you know, like the beeline thing going on right now with the slugs versus thugs controversy. Um, you can repair it. Uh, and you can repair it because there's an underlying trust and respect of the coach. The players think the coach does have their interest. And the coach messes up, maybe. Maybe a player messes up, cusses out the coach, you know, in practice, doesn't like something, or pouts, or goes off and sulks, gets kicked out of practice. You know, those things are going to happen. I think in today's society, we try to make it the end of the world. And everyone's got to make a judgment on who's 100% right, who's 100% wrong, and we love to blow it up. And and everyone's got to have an opinion on it. And all these people don't know – they don't know Jack because <laughs> they're not there in practice. Well, they don't know what Izzo, like what they're in Henry thing. They don't know Izzo's relationship with him on and off the court with his family, you know, the trust factor there. And if, if you're a jackass coach, you're eventually going to erode that trust and that underlying sense of respect, and, and you will eventually get exposed, and it's not going to go well. Well, it's funny. I mean, you kind of hit on all the things I was about to bring up in terms of context and, and uh, physical versus verbal because just a couple of years ago, Frank Martin, the same coach, was suspended by South Carolina for using the F and A words at a player. And, it, it you know, just just my two cents, it's, it strikes me as odd that's, that someone who was suspended by his university, by his employer, for, for, you know, verbally cussing out a player, you would think such a person would be a little more careful, especially when it comes to physical things, but who am I to judge? Never been a coach. Well, 
yeah, it's the heat of the moment. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure Frank Martin's gone home, and his wife's probably giving him lip about. You know, I think it'd be better if you calmed it down or whatever. And Frank is probably at times said, you know, I think you got a good point there. I need to chill out, but you know, things change when you're down five or up five. You know, with three minutes to play, and you don't feel like a player's heads in the game the way it should be, or they're making mistakes. Uh, things are going to happen, um, you know, and he's a volatile, in-your-face, kind of old-school sure. type guy. I mean, that's what he is. That's what you hired. That's very So true. I don't know where you draw the lines. And obviously, coaches build up goodwill. So, you know, I think Frank's kind of beloved in South Carolina. He's done a good job compared to, you know, that's a, not and an easy job. And do you think, do you think, so say. So he gets, he gets a little more leeway. I was about to say, do and you I think, think it should have, be that way? But like, do you think if he had say made it to the Sweet Sixteen or the Elite Eight uh, a couple of years ago instead of making the Final Four, do you think this conversation would be slightly different because uh, he had made the Final Four? I mean, four? I don't know on that specific situation. I know if fans were disgruntled by the performance on the court, it's. It, the discussion is going to be a little different. Uh, for instance, here in Nashville, Kevin Stallings at Vanderbilt. I mean, Kevin Stallings coached here for, what, like almost 17 years or something? I remember I used to go to his practices when I was a high school coach right down the street at NBA. And, you coached NBA? And we tried, yeah, and recruited his son, tried to get his son to come to NBA. So I got to know Kevin pretty well because I was recruiting his kid. <laughs> or, quote, recruiting his kid. <laughs> and, he, you know, he ended up going to Brentwood Academy instead so coached against him but coach stallings you know when he's early at vanderbilt he was rough but i noticed after he, he would typically pick guys up after he beat them down um which is what every good coach does and i don't know over time once vanderbilt towards the end wasn't winning as much and he became more cantankerous and there was a little less of the build-up part. Well, he had a shorter leash with the fans and the administration because of the product on the court and just the overall trust and vibe. Where I don't think Coach Stallings did anything worse. You know, like I remember he got so mad at some guy during a game, whatever, he said something crazy. He got caught on a hot mic. And it was a huge deal. Um, if he does that earlier in his career when, it, when the bad will – hasn't started to set in and they, they're having success on the court, you get away with more. But towards the end with Coach Stallings, he had eroded that trust and that connection with the fan base and the administration. So the same type of action was going to be a different discussion, <laughs> if not a firing, because the problems you're causing aren't worth your talent <laughs> you know you, you're not bringing us enough for us to deal with these PR nightmares all right so let's so let's move up a road from South Carolina to North Carolina because things are not going well in Chapel Hill and coach Roy Williams went on his radio show this past Monday and and I, this is not an exact quote but basically he said that this is the least talented team he's ever coached and in the past 30 years he's missed the tournament I'm pretty sure exactly once and right now it's definitely trending towards North Carolina um, not making the tournament, though I do want to talk to you about that before we get out here. And my question for you is, is that okay? He called his team the least talented team. Like that's, that, If I was a player, I would be 
just so insulted. You recruited me. I didn't recruit you, right? You recruited me to come here, uh-huh. and now you're calling me not talented? Like, that, that feels like a real breach of trust in my eyes. Yeah, and I, I can see that viewpoint. Um, again, it comes down to the relationship between he and his players, and now he's framed the discussion with his players, and I'm sure he's had to address the team about his comments. Uh, you know, like I read quotes about it, and they, they came from two directions from two of the, of the players. Uh, Baycott was more like coach was just keeping it real. <laughs> and and I think he's right. And part of that is I think he's coming from the perspective, I see what coach is doing, and I didn't hear how he said it. I didn't hear Coach Williams' tone because that has a lot to do with this. Like the, did he say it in a complaining whining type way or is he just stating the fact I don't know I didn't hear but Baycott you could tell he was taking with kind of the idea coaches taking pressure off us in a way like lowering expectations whereas Robinson the shooting guard he seemed a little pissed about it and he was, you know, he was like well you know he might think that but we want to change that we're going to work harder so either way just based on those quotes it looked like he has a pretty good relationship with his team you know, they're, both those guys weren't completely negative, and I think he wanted their player to be pissed off. Sometimes coaches say – so, it's again, it's one of those – yeah, when I first heard that, I was like, ooh, <laughs> like, I can't believe he said that. And then – but then I'm like, but Jerry, I don't know his relationship with the team. I don't know the tone of his voice. when he's, It's all about him and that team. So, do you – like – I, I'm still caught up in this. Like I, I, I would be, I would be pretty hurt if this was my coach. And and well, like it's not you, just I would, that you should be hurt because you suck. <laughs> yeah, but like and, if and, if I if I was his player, I know I suck. Do you think like do, do, well, and, like and Roy should be upset because you recruited that team. So he's, I it's self own. There's no other way to say it. He's self owning himself because you recruited this team. You need to do a better job recruiting if this team is so not good. I agree. Um, so maybe it works for the team. Maybe it motivates. Maybe maybe Baycott, as I'm just working on their quotes. You know, maybe he has a sense of relief. Okay, you know, coaches open it up for us to be awful. So anything we do good now, we don't have expectations. Robinson might be. I'm going to show that FF coach, blankety blank. I'm going to show him we're better. This is not going to be our narrative. Well, it sounds like it could work well in both directions. It also could blow up. If another coach says that, he's not Roy Williams. It's a different story. He's built up clout, and we'll we'll find out. But I it, I get the impression it it hurt everyone else more than it hurt his players. Yeah, I'm just gonna put on my tinfoil hat for a second and go completely opposite direction from where I was going. Maybe maybe he told his players he's gonna go to the media and do this to distract attention, and they have to like put up these quotes that that give the media exactly what they want, and then they can just focus on basketball. That like there's there's well, that's nothing possible. there's nothing to possible. say that that happened. Uh, well, there's possible that that narrative you just put out there that some of it. Could have been the case. I doubt he went. To, oh, well, I, I'm he, goofing off. I no, don't think it's no, real. No, but I think you have a point. No, I think you have a point. I, I don't think it probably happened in the extreme that you described it. And I don't think he went to the players first and said, all right, guys, here's what we're going to do. <laughs> I'm going to say some really awful things about you, and we're going to rally around that. No, I think he was just being honest. And then Roy, Roy the after effect. he said it, he might have been like, oh, dang, I don't know if I should have said that. 
But the fact is, and Roy said it, it's true. I haven't heard anyone in the media say he's wrong. I've just heard him say he shouldn't have said that. Well, you know what? I don't. I don't know but, if he's right. Like, oh, this, he's this, right. This, this, this is this is a bad team. I don't know if it's talent. Well, I'd though. like to see you name a team worse. I mean, that he's. I'd have coached. to go back and look. I, I, just, I, I mean, he he has coached I very would argue, good teams. It, it, to my knowledge, I haven't researched it. It sounded pretty accurate to me when he said that. I haven't seen any media person argue that he was wrong. <laughs> and so all that matters is wrong or right between him and the team. And a lot of society misses out on that. So maybe Roy did an awful thing. Maybe he treated his players wrong. Maybe he embarrassed them in the public spotlight. Well, maybe he did. And if he did, then the team's probably not going to respond. And they're probably going to get worse. And we're going to be able to say Roy didn't do a good job managing this team. They may not make the tournament, <clears throat> but if they get better, because I don't think they're a tournament team. Now, get Cole Anthony back, maybe, if everything comes together. But if they get better, even if it's not a, to become a tournament team, then, you, then you're going to look back on what Roy said in a different light. So we really, really can't judge it until after the fact, in a way. So, let, so let's interrogate, before we get out of here, I, I want to interrogate that question you just posed. Can this North Carolina team become a tournament team? So in that same press conference on Monday, uh, Roy updated uh, everybody on Cole Anthony's status and his injury. He said he's on time. When the, when Cole Anthony suffered the injury, it was a four- to six-week type situation. Uh, and if with injuries, I always err on the side of caution. I go to the far side of the injury. People have to recover. People have to get used to you know playing basketball again. So if if it was six weeks, that would be their game against NC State on January twenty seventh. But here's the thing: the game against NC State is on the road, and generally speaking, people uh, coaches like to bring their players back at home in their own facilities, so that, you know they don't have to travel. They have their own doctors there. So I think it's more likely later that week that Cole Anthony would come back, assuming he does want to come back and finish out the season, uh, I think it would be more likely that he would come back on February 1st against Boston College. And so my question to you is, from that moment on, can Cole, Anth- can Cole Anthony single-handedly Kemba Walker UNC into the tournament? Because I don't think, you know, that he's not going to be able to Kemba Walker them to a national title. That, that, that's just not in the cards. I don't think so. But you were always high on Cole Anthony's talent when you were recruiting him and even coming into the season. And so I ask you, with no help from his team, UNC is missing two rotation players out for the year. With basically no help, how far could Cole Anthony take this team? I have no idea. So okay. with, with with no help, probably not very far. <laughs> it's not like these guys are invalids. I mean, no, but they're not. Everything's relative, that you know. Like, it's it's UNC we're I, talking about. You know, about. I don't know. I mean, they could make the tournament. I would I would guess. Uh, you know. So I, I give you I give you a very hard question. Well, I, don't, I, well I just don't know. I mean, I held back some standings. stats from you. I held back some information for you. So let me give you some more context. Okay, so I, I, I was thinking about this a lot this week because I really wanted to see Cole Anthony in the tournament going into the year. Like, I was pretty – I bought into what you were saying to, to a lot of people. I'd seen the high school mixtape, and I was just like, this Cole Anthony kid's a stud. And so I was pretty invested in him. And so once he got injured, I started asking myself, is there an analog for this UNC team where the, there, there was a star who was clearly driving the team towards the tournament and then got hurt? And I found one. So in 2017-2018, Notre Dame, top five team going into the season, 
halfway through the year or a little before halfway through the year, Bonzi Colson, preseason All-American, goes down with an injury, misses the whole rest of the regular season. So when Colson went down with the injury, Notre Dame is 11-3 and and I think top 10 in the AP. When he gets back for the first game of the ACC tournament, they're a bubble team and they're 18-13. and And they go on, they win two games in the tournament and then eventually lose a close one to Duke in the semifinals and get a high seed in uh, the NIT. They don't make the tournament. And so that that's my analog. But the thing is that Cole Anthony will have a lot more time uh, after the injury than Bonzi Colson did. Cole's you know probably going to come back with a month and a bit left of the regular season. And so if, if Cole Anthony comes back when... Uh, when I said earlier, that game against Boston College, they'll have 11 games left, including four opportunities to play top 15 Ken Palm teams, which is huge because if they can get those big wins, I think that they could be them. So here is what it would be. If Ken Palm projections hold out, they would be 10-10 and 10 when Cole Anthony comes back. And so they've got these four games against top 15. Let's say for a second they go two and two. They split. That's really ambitious. That would require, I mean, you tell me, how, you know, it would have to be like 36 and five from Cole Anthony, like both of those games, you know, to win against Duke, against Florida yeah, State. Well, 36 and five is pretty easy for him. <laughs> That's crazy. I mean, what does he average? I don't know. I don't he think. averaged more than that in the Nike EYBL. But anyway, uh, I, that's not far reaching for him to have 30. So let's say he does that two and two against those uh, four games in the top 15, six and one against the rest, all of which are teams that I think they should beat. That would put them at 18 and 13, just like Bonzi Colson. And so the question becomes can, what can they do in the uh, ACC tournament? And so that's the question I really want to pose to you. If we come in and they are as bubbly as seltzer water coming into the uh, oh my god I can't believe I just said that they're bubbly they're right yeah, there on the a, bubble that was a good one thank you I, thank you it's been your best analogy actually. thank you so much so <laughs> so so they're right there on the bubble going into the ACC tournament they're gonna have to win four games four games in four days including two in the semifinal and final if they make it against really top-level teams. And so do you think that if they get to that situation, Cole Anthony can just go off and win the ACC tournament by himself? Mm, very unlikely. Very unlikely. Oof. And that's, and that's coming from you. They're who's just like, not that good. I didn't think they were any good when Cole was playing for him. Oh, really? I didn't realize that. Well, he's good, but, I he, mean, it, it, that, that team didn't look good to me. No. Um, and then they looked really, really bad without him, but they never looked good with him. I just don't think it's a very good North Carolina team, even with Cole Anthony. I'm not saying they can't do it because, um, number one, I'm <laughs> not always right. And, number two, teams get better. You know, they do. And if you could predict it all, if it was this easy to do what we're doing, yeah, well, it's not that easy. <laughs> no. We, you would be making money and probably not doing this show because you would be prognosticating and getting bank off your ability to read the crystal ball well hey and 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 the thing is if if you had you know one two three choices of a coach to make a team that's really underperforming like change in the middle of the season Roy Williams would not be a bad choice well uh, true and and there's other coaches and and Roy is one of the top ones one thing about Roy just his overall coaching philosophy and system. You know, like the fans get mad because he doesn't call timeouts. Mm-hmm. Like it's a big Roy Williams thing. He likes to play through slumps without the timeout. And that fits in with his, you know, North Carolina's kind of that team. We're going to do what we do. 
we're going to run a lot of motion offense that early on may not look so great because I'm not micromanaging and programming and joystick coaching sets on offense. You know, the players reading and reacting, we're running action, they got to make decisions. And I don't even like to call timeout to help them through a tough time. You know, I want them to have to fight through it themselves. And we're willing to maybe not look so good early on, even lose some games with the idea in the end we're going to come together. So in that fact, yeah, I think Roy Williams has a system of coaching that, you know, might give you some optimism <laughs> that this team – because if he were a micromanaged coach and you're stinking this bad now, what, is his coaching going to get better? You get what I'm saying? So you're like, where's, where's the room for improvement? Of course – even on teams like that, the players get better. But it's got to get the players get better. You start playing together better as a team, giving each other confidence, figuring each other out, and playing better. The players playing better. It's not so much about the coaching. So if that gives any hope to the Tar Heel Nation, I hope well, it does. If, if, if there's one thing I'm hearing from you is, is that – it's it it seems very unlikely even even to see North Carolina go eight and three, including two and two against the top fifteen. Once Cole Anthony comes back, assuming he comes back completely healthy, assuming he comes back and looks like Cole Anthony, it, it's very ambitious. But one thing is for sure, when you look at the ACC tournament, when you look at those games against projected you know, high seed tournament teams, this UNC team could easily become one of those teams that's playing spoiler and really ruining seed lines, ruining bubble team, bubble team seasons, because when you have a guy like Cole Anthony, your ceiling in any given game is just, you know, sky's the limit because the dude can just go off for who knows what. Right. What he does give you is that Everything. threat. He gives you that threat to have a miracle game, mm-hmm. and, and you beat someone you got – really no reason to beat because he has the capability to just freaking go off yeah. and take over a game. Now, the problem is if he has to do that 10 games in a row. <laughs> you know, Sounds it, very tiring. The magic in the bottle starts to evaporate. Yeah. All right, well, we, we already had a long show, so that, that I think that's, that's going to take us home, Jerry. I am, uh, I am excited to uh, let you know how our, our beer – Beer and basketball practice uh, in, in the brewery. Your defensive practice. In the That's bar. right. Well, you know, I I, I already have an idea. I, I'm team captain, so I say we're gonna we're gonna switch every pick. We're gonna we're gonna switch one through five. There we go. Unless 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 we have someone who's like six 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 seven, I think we're gonna switch one through five, yeah. and we're gonna try to get out and run. So uh, those of you at home who paying attention, pay attention. You know, we'll we'll be back next week with updates, and and in two weeks we'll have updates from a game. So that'll be exciting. But uh, keep so an eye on. Col- this is gonna turn into the time. Yes. Rec League hey. podcast, isn't it? Hey, I have. This is not my only show, and uh, some of them, some of them are very, very niche. But we can, we if look, the listeners are the gods. The listener gods, if they want, if they want Nashville Rec League basketball and the young professionals, that's what we got to give them. But for now, we'll stick to Cole Anthony. We'll stick to three point shots and Jerry's uh, modern basketball philosophy. Thank you so much for listening to the twenty four seven Sports College Basketball Show. Don't forget to follow us at twenty four seven Sports College Basketball Show on Twitter. Tweet us. 24-7 CBB with that hashtag to ask questions to Jerry. We'd love to hear from you. Love to answer your questions. Make this podcast for you, about you. This is your podcast. Own it. We want you to be part of it. Uh, so looking forward to seeing your tweets. Uh, for next Until next week, I'm your host, Tani Levitt, signing off the 24-7 Sports College Basketball Show.